Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. Not 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. You know, beloved, I think it was, well, for sure a month, likely longer ago, <laughs> time goes by so fast, that I preached on John 17 in verse 17, where Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And I told you then how important this was to the sufficiency of Scripture and how I was going to return to this subject. It is an important subject, okay? So often in evangelical circles, we tend to outsource God's people to the professionals out there. And sometimes that is needed, but sometimes it is not needed. We're guilty of that. And we need to be very careful in how we are to shepherd God's people. I'm speaking more to the leadership and how we lead them because I don't want to steer them down the wrong road because I know that when I outsource God's people to the world, likely they're going to hear worldly things and not godly wisdom. And so this is an important subject. Well, this week and next week, I want to address this. All right. And you know, to some degree, I have already spoken to the issue. I think it was probably about four months ago. I spoke on Second Peter 1, 16 to 21. If you don't remember or you weren't here, you don't recall, go back, uh, to our, uh, go back to our internet and just download the message and listen to it. I know that you will find it to be an encouragement to you. Also, Pastor Keith, uh, here just a couple of months ago, uh, touched on it as well in Psalm 19. So both of those passages of Scripture address this, all right? But we weren't concentrating necessarily on <laughs> the sufficiency of Scripture as we are today and next week. We are making that our focus. Now, before we look at our text for today, I do want to share a number of things with you up front. Just so that you know my thinking and to prepare us for what God's Word says of itself. Because we're going to be looking at that here shortly. First of all, and I believe there's a hearty amen to this, the Word of God, the Bible, is inspired. In other words, it's God-breathed. God is its author. Amen? Amen. Yeah, Second Peter 1. Holy men of God spake as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. God is the author of His Word, alright? Second of all, because it is authored by God, it's authoritative. I mean, think about it. We're talking about our Creator, our Redeemer, has given us in His Word what He wants us to know and how He wants us to live. He has the final say-so on everything. In fact, what He says is a true. Now, there's lots of good things you're going to hear out there in the world that might be true. And at the same time, you might hear other things. Always gauge what you hear out there with what the Bible says. Because the Bible is the final say-so. It's authoritative. What God says is final. But then also, the Word of God is sufficient. 
And what I mean by sufficiency is that the Bible is fully able to address all matters of faith and living. Now, this does not mean that the Bible says everything on a given subject or experience. I think you realize that. You know what I'm getting at. For example, mathematics. Huh? How about history, science, carpentry, mechanics, medicine? The Bible isn't a book about those things. But I will say this. Whatever those books out there say of these things, if it contradicts what the Bible says, what's true? The Bible is true, okay? So the Bible is fully capable of dealing with issues of the heart, soul, and life a person faces in this fallen world. For example, anger, fear, anxiety, depression, grief, sexual sin, marital and parenting issues, and scores, and I mean scores, of other problems. The Bible speaks to it. You may have not even realized that, but it does. Heath Lambert put it this way. And by the way, Heath Lambert is a good author. If you go on the internet and look him up, he's written a number of articles on the sufficiency of Scripture. And it is really good. He's written and authored some books as well that I'm going to mention here uh, throughout this message. I personally believe that he does the best in interacting with the arguments that are out there against the sufficiency of Scripture. He does a great job. You know, a lot of times you can read an article and it's going to just talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's good. But what he does is he interacts with the arguments against it. And uh, so I appreciate that about him. Well, anyway, he says this about the sufficiency of Scripture. It means that the Bible is a is rich in resources to address the problems in living we face. It means that God has told us what we need to live life in the midst of the various spiritual and emotional struggles we encounter. That's just a longer version of what I said. <laughs> the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and living. In fact, one of the arguments is this. That the Bible is not scientific enough in describing components of the heart, giving cognitive and emotional steps for dealing with various disorders. And my response to that is, really? That's not true. The Bible speaks thoroughly to the heart. Tells you about the components of the heart, the mind, the emotion, the will. It does a good job of that. It also means that we have what we need to live life in the midst of the various spiritual and emotional struggles we encounter. Just as Heath Lambert pointed out, we have godly wisdom in God's word versus the world's wisdom that is out there. Another way of looking at it is to ask this question, and this is a very important question. Was the scripture sufficient for the Old and New Testament saints, those people in Bible times, who did not have the advances of science we have today? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. By the way, 
There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> okay? The things that people experienced in Bible times, we're experiencing them today. Oh, yes, we do have the advances of science. But frankly, in many ways, it's directing us away from the Word of God. Whereas those people didn't. And yet the Bible is sufficient. Now, I have said this before, and I do want to say this again, okay? I do believe that the curse of sin affects the mind and body such that you might need to see a doctor who will do some blood work and likely prescribe some medication so that you can function properly. Yeah, I get that, okay? So I want to say that right up front. There are things that are wrong in our bodies due to the curse of sin. And so we do need medicine for those kinds of things. And yet, I will tell you, (laughs) sometimes I think we send people to the doctors or people go to the doctor, maybe see a psychologist when in fact you don't need to see them at all. The answer is right here in the Word of God. And I want you to know that what you have here is God's wisdom and out there you're going to receive man's wisdom, which does not mix, by the way. (laughs) It's like oil and water. And so you need to be very, very careful of that. I will say this also as well. Your mental and physical malady is not the cause of sin in your lives. Remember that. When I have worked with individuals, they will tell me, well, I've got this problem, and it's something physical or mental, and that's why I do what I do. Oh, no, that's not true. That's not what the Scriptures tell us. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 15, Jesus himself said otherwise. He says, all of us are going to have to give an account for the things we say. And he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you curse, say dirty jokes, that all comes from your heart. That's not because you have some physical or mental illness, all right? Same thing is true in Matthew 15. Jesus goes on to list scores of spiritual issues, sinful issues, and he says it comes from the heart. Only the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, is sufficient to address this. I had a conversation, I think I mentioned this to you here a little over a month ago, with a pastor. And we were just having a conversation, and he was mentioning his brother, who has a short fuse. He gets angry real quick, and he says, but I understand that he has Lyme disease. And so, a pastor speaking to a pastor, and I said, well, you understand that really Lyme disease has nothing to do with that. And he disagreed with me. And now we didn't raise our voices with one another, but I reminded him of what Jesus said in both Matthew 12 and Matthew 15. And then he says, well, we all have sin natures. I said, that's right. (laughs) We do. Okay. And we've got sin in our members and it's going to come out. All right. And so when we have a physical malady or a mental malady, our body is weak. And so what happens? What's in our heart becomes more transparent. (laughs) Also, I talked with a missionary some time ago. This would probably be 10 plus years ago. 
He had to come off the mission field because he was having problems with his son. And that was the right thing to do. And the agency that he was working for suggested that he go to a Christian counselor. And so I just told him, I said, you need to be very careful about this. Because usually Christian counselors, they, yes, will use the Bible, but they will also mix it with psychology. And you need to be very careful about what you hear. And, uh, but he said, well, I, okay, but I have to go there because this is what the agency says. I said, I get that. Well, later we met up and I said, so how is everything with your son? And he goes, you wouldn't believe it, Pastor. I think we've got the answer. And I said, what is it? He says, my son has ODD. I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't know what those initials meant. ODD? He says, yeah, opposition defiance disorder. I said, how did he figure that out? Did he take some blood work? Oh, no. I just told him of my son's problems. My son was sitting there agreeing to it. And so by observation, he said, this is what he has. And said, so what was his prescription? Well, he's given him some medication to deal with this. And we're hoping over time that he will get better. So I just gently said to him, I said, well, uh, did you know the Bible speaks to this, but not in that language? It does. I said, yeah, opposition, defiance, disorder. Now, that's the world's terminology. The Bible's terminology is what? Rebellion. (laughs) It's rebellion, okay? And I said, the only answer to that is the gospel and the word of God. I don't know if your son is saved, but he needs the gospel if he's not, because that's the only thing that can change his heart. Oh, yes, he may struggle with rebellion. But you know what? We have the Word of God to help us along in our walk with Him. And so this is going to take more time than just medication. You may have to be off the mission field for good. You may have to get a secular job so that you can focus on your son and disciple his heart. You know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139, 23 and 28, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's what David said. You know, beloved, I would not be a pastor if I did not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I wouldn't. Might as well get out of this pulpit. I'm not going to give you my wisdom or man's, but I'm going to give you God's wisdom. Pray for me in that way. Because... Yes, does my wisdom get in the way sometimes? Yeah, it does. Does the world's wisdom get in the way sometimes? Yeah, it does. It just slips out without me thinking about it. So pray for me in that way. I don't want to be a shepherd that leads you according to the world, but according to God's Word. You know, it's amazing how much the Bible speaks to certain things. Yeah, there's stories. There's illustrations, there's commands, there's principles, there's instruction of all sorts in the Word of God. The problem is, we as God's people don't know enough about the Word of God to bring it to bear on the hearts and minds of people. That's a poor testimony for us. The more you know and understand God's Word, you'll have wisdom to apply 
for all circumstances. It's not just the pastor who's competent to counsel. Did you know that? All of God's people are competent to counsel and to disciple. Why? Because we have God's word. And the more you know it, the better able you're to, to, to bring it upon the hearts and minds of people and to encourage them, to confront them lovingly and help restore them by God's grace. Well, this leads me into the text that I want us to consider for today. And it's a very familiar portion of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. You're right there. Follow along as I read. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. As some of you likely know, Paul was about to die as he wrote this letter. We see that very clearly in chapter 4 and verse 6, where it says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And here he's writing to Timothy a young pastor in the church at Ephesus. Around him, there were evil men, evil men and imposters. That's what it says there in verse 13. And in the first nine verses of chapter 13, it describes them. But Timothy had been mentored by the apostle for some 15 years. And so he was ready for his responsibility and was expected to remain faithful to what had been entrusted to him. This is why Paul went on to say what he did there in verse 14. Look what it says. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Two questions arise here when you read this verse. One, what were the things Timothy learned and for which he was to continue in? And who taught him? Well, let's go on to read what it says in the first part of verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. So clearly here, the foundational and primary things Timothy learned were the Old Testament scriptures. Yeah, the New Testament had not been formed as of yet. So it's the Old Testament scriptures, which were taught to him by whom? His mother and his grandmother to begin with. It says that there in Second Timothy 1 and verse 5 at the very beginning here. But then the Apostle Paul came in later into his life and continued to build upon what Mama and Grandma had done and discipled that man's heart. And so, beloved, it is important that you personally, as married couples, as parents, have a steady diet of God's Word. I mean that. And that you apply it. How many times have you heard me say that? Many times. And you'll continue to hear me say that. 
If this book is not your priority, I can almost guarantee that you are regularly failing in your walk with the Lord and likely struggling in your marriages and in your parenting. I mean, look what Paul says to Timothy as he goes on in chapter 4. Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away from their ear, their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. In fact, right behind this pulpit, you probably don't know this, but engraven are the words, preach the word. <laughs> it's a reminder to me. That's what we're to be about because God's people get so easily sidetracked. And you know, I can't help but sometimes expect that. Because all day long, we are inundated with the lost. We lock arms with them. We hear what they have to say. We're on the internet throughout the day. We are watching television regularly. We listen to the radio. We read magazines. We read newspapers. I mean, throughout the day, I would venture to say that we spend more time feeding our hearts and minds with those things than we do God's Word. Yeah, we do. So what do you expect is going to happen? You're going to start to think like the world does. You're going to start embracing some of their philosophies. And so it's no wonder why we don't see the Word of God as sufficient. Yeah. Well, in this passage, the Apostle narrows life down to two important features. Just two. For which the Bible is sufficient. And as we consider them this morning, I trust that the Spirit of God will convince your heart and lead you to make changes for His glory. Now, we are likely going to be a little longer <laughs> than what we have in the past, okay? I just finished the introduction, okay? <laughs> oh, it, oh but that's been 20 minutes, okay? But uh, don't let this sidetrack you. I, 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 I hope and trust that um, this will be very engaging for your heart and mind. It needs to be. The first feature, important feature, is there in verse 15. Look what Paul said again. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What do you notice here? The Word of God is sufficient for what? What does it say so clearly there? It's sufficient for... Salvation, absolutely. It's sufficient for salvation. Paul told Timothy that it was the sacred writings, the Old Testament scriptures that gave him the wisdom that leads to salvation. This is also affirmed in other passages of scripture. 
Think about Psalm 19 and verse 7. David says this. The law of the Lord is perfect. What? Converting or restoring the soul. How about Romans 1 and verse 16? Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to Greek. Where do we have that verse at? Does anybody know? There you go, right out in the foyer. My brother there noticed that the other day when he came in here. Yes. He said, I appreciate that verse. You bet. I hope all of you realize that. Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God into salvation? You should. The Word of God is sufficient for that very thing. How about 1 Peter 1, 23-25? Listen to these words. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the Word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the Word which was preached to you. You know where where he was quoting that from? Isaiah 40, verse 6 and following. It's taken from the Old Testament. Now, let me say this. Integrationists would agree with the fact that the Word of God is sufficient for salvation. Now, you might say, what's an integrationist? An integrationist is a professing Christian psychologist who uses the Bible in counseling. That's what an integrationist is. But it's as though they limit salvation to a contract whereby you are forgiven of your sin through faith in Jesus. Is that true? You bet it is. It's absolutely true. But is that everything salvation is? I put my faith in Jesus. I'm saved from hell. Wow, now that's taken care of. Now what? No. Salvation is much more, as the rest of this passage here certainly reveals. You see, you were dead in sin, in bondage to it, but then the power of God through the Word of God, the Gospel, reached your heart and gave you new life. What was that new life? Eternal life. What is eternal life? God in you. Think about that this morning. Your salvation, yes, you are delivered from your sin, that penalty of sin. But it goes much deeper than that. You have eternal life, God Himself, in the Spirit, who changes us. Ephesians 2, 1-9, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Why? Because God is in you. And what does 1 John 4, 4 say? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do we believe that? Boy, we should. That should bring great encouragement to your heart and life. This is what salvation is all about. I love the story of the demoniac in Scripture. Luke 8 and also Mark 5. But go with me, if you would, holding your space here in 2 Timothy to Luke chapter 8. I want us to read that. Luke chapter 8. Beginning with verse 26 through verse 36. Luke 8. 
Then they, that is the disciples and Jesus, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. By the way, I've been there. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, that is Jesus, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time. He's running around naked and was not living in a house but in the tombs. I mean, today we look at that person and say, man, there's a freak out there. Stay away from him. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons have entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. Think about that. The demons recognized who had authority. (laughs) It was God. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what would happen, what had happened, they ran away and reported it to the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. I thought it was interesting what a commentator said on that portion of Scripture. Listen to this. Now they see this man sitting in his right mind, fully dressed, and they are afraid. Afraid is from the Greek root word phobeo and means to be terrified to the point of flight. They aren't afraid that the man will revert to his former behavior. They're afraid of the awesome power it took to free him. Human shackles and chains and guards cannot contain the destructive forces inside us. Our sin nature condemns us as holy as any demon possession. And there is nothing in the human realm that can free us Only the power of Jesus can set us right, put us in our right mind spiritually, and clothe us in righteousness. Amen and amen to that. And so Jesus not only removed the demon from the man's life, but he brought him to salvation through the word. I want you to listen to some of these testimonies from Richard Gans. You probably don't know him. Uh, he wrote this book. It's entitled Psychobabble. Uh, it's the failure of modern psychology and the biblical alternative. Richard Gans uh, was an atheist. He was uh, a doctor in psychology. And he and his wife got saved. Gloriously came to Christ. Well, as a babe in Christ, 
he took on a job at a hospital in the mental ward. And I want you to hear some of the things he had to say. It is interesting how this book starts out. I'm already, I I read this book probably 20 years ago. And I just picked it up this week again because I wanted to to read it. I'm already two-thirds of the way through it. It's easy read. I would encourage you to get the book. But this is how the first chapter starts. It gets your attention right away. Get it out, Emmanuel! The group looked on in astonished shock as Emmanuel writhed in agony. What had begun as anxious, deep breathing had progressed to violent spasms and hyperventilation. Get it out, I cried, that's Richard Gans, to Emmanuel. I whipped out a small New Testament I had been carrying in my pocket. Just that morning, I read from the 24th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And the reason he did is because the man finally screamed out and said, I am God. Matthew says, If anyone says to you, Behold, there is the Christ... Or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Abruptly, Emmanuel's writhing, spathoms, and hyperventilation ceased. He calmly asked, where did you read that from? I told him, tossing the Bible across the room and telling him to check it out for himself. There was not another sound or another word from Emmanuel for one solid month. Four weeks later, I was sitting in my office during lunch hour, reading from the Bible and praying despite my earnest prayer to be used by God to bring others to Christ. So far in my eight months as a Christian, this hadn't happened. Then came the encounter that changed my life. There was a knock at my door. Guess who it was? Emmanuel. I invited him in and asked, what brings you to my office? This man had spoken only a few words in several years. He looked at me now and clearly and calmly said, I want to become a Christian. (laughs) You, You talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation. Yeah. The next page, he says, trembling, I asked Emmanuel, when do you want to become a Christian? (laughs) Right now, he responded. I sat down with Emmanuel and showed him the plan of salvation to which he hardly embraced. Yeah, praise be to God. Now, the next few pages go on to share (laughs) what Emmanuel did. He started witnessing to other patients in the hospital, even the people who were working there, the staff, they didn't like it. They said, this guy's even more of a weirdo. And so they took the situation to the supervisor who had heard from these people that Richard Gans is responsible for this. And so when Richard Gans came into work, he says, is what I'm hearing true? And so he repeated back and he says, well, yeah, but he's doing much better, isn't he? Yeah, but he's sitting out here talking about salvation to these people and everything. But he's doing much better, is he not? And from my perspective, he has everything. (laughs) 
He says, I don't want you to speak about this stuff anymore. I'm telling you that. Well, the next day, Richard Gans just couldn't abide by that. And he just said, he came back the next day and he just says, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't. So he says, so his supervisor said, you have 30 days and then you're going to have to leave. Well, we pick this up later in the chapter. He says, I had 30 days notice. And during my final 30 days at the medical center, a middle-aged Orthodox Jew came to my attention on the ward. Now, the reason he did is because Richard Gans himself was a Jew. And so he heard about this man. He said, I'd like to go talk to him. He spent most of his time in a fetal position, doing nothing. I went over to him and commanded him to get up in the name of Jesus Christ. (laughs) He stood up, enraged, informing me that he was a Jew. I explained that everything he longed and hoped for, both as an individual and as a Jew, could be found in the Messiah Jesus. He rushed from the room, assuring me that he would prove me wrong. He went out and got a Bible. And we began meeting to discuss what the Old Testament had to say about Jesus. I never again saw him in a fetal position. Rather, he was bent over his Bible, intent on proving that I was wrong about Jesus. One day, I took him to lunch. To my amazement, he said, I want to become a Christian now. His studies had brought him to Christ. Over a hamburger and french fries, I led him to the place of mercy and living waters from which he eagerly drank. My remaining weeks at the hospital more closely resembled revival services than psychotherapy. Beloved, I share this with you because if God's word is sufficient to raise you and I from the dead spiritually, giving us salvation, it is sufficient to deal with life's problems. (laughs) It is. God is not going to leave us to ourselves without guidance and help through His Word. I mean, you're His children. You belong to Him. He abides in you. Do you think He's just going to say, well... You know, you've got this problem. I I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to have to handle it by yourself. Really? Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation or trial taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful will not allow you to suffer more than you are able, but with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You know what that simply means? Is that God will go with you through anything that you face and bring you on the other side victorious. That's what that verse means. You think God is surprised at all the things that are going on in your life? Huh? I know I'm asking that facetiously. No, He's not surprised by any of this. He knows. He knows you better than you know yourself. Okay? He's not leaving you to yourself. He's given you all that is necessary to deal with these things. And so, beloved, the Word of God is sufficient for salvation. That's first what he says there. Now go back with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy 3. 
And let's look at verses 16 and 17 at another feature that is very clear here. Paul goes on to say this, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So what do you notice here? What's another feature? The Word of God is sufficient for sanctification. Sanctification. Not just salvation, but sanctification. And by sanctification, I mean a setting apart unto God from our sin. It's the working out of the salvation that you possess. Philippians 2.12, we have the command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And believers in Christ work out what God has and is working in them. Philippians 1.6, he who hath begun a good work in you by salvation will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.13, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the way he does this is by his spirit using the truth as recorded in scripture. We simply cooperated with him in this process. Now, are there times that Christians don't seem to be helped? Yeah, that's because their hearts are not working with the Spirit. They're not cooperating with the Spirit in their sanctification. But if you sincerely look to God's Word and are applying it, the Word of God promises a transformation to take place. You will be renewed from the inside out. And again, remember what Jesus prayed? John seventeen seventeen. Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. These were believing men. Earlier, he had told them what? One of you is going to deny me. One of you is going to betray me. Oh, by the way, I'm leaving you. They were all just hurt inside, depressed about the fact. And then Jesus came to them And said, if you believe in God, believe also in me. Don't allow this to get the best of you. Find comfort in me. 1 Peter 2.2 As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You see, if this were not so, Jesus would not have said what he said. Okay. This has come from the mouth of our God in the flesh. Now, as I mentioned earlier, from verse 16. The Bible is authored by God. Alright? It's inspired. It's breathed out by Him. Holy men of God spake as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, as the Scripture says there in verse 16, it is what? Profitable. <laughs> that is beneficial to make the man or woman of God adequate, as it says there in verse 17. That word adequate doesn't mean okay. No. The word adequate means there to be complete or to bring to maturity, equipped for every good work, as it says there at the end of verse 17. You have everything necessary for life and godliness. And so this is quite a statement to the Bible's sufficiency. Is it not? You bet it is. But again, why is that? Because it's authored by God. That's why. 
And so how is the Bible sufficient for the sanctifying work in Christians? That's a good question. Well, the rest of verse 16 tells us, first of all, it happens through its teaching. Teaching here is referring to doctrine and instruction. From cover to cover, you're going to find all sorts of doctrine, teaching, instruction about God, about life, salvation, okay? The Word of God itself, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, eternity. And whatever it says is true because God authored it. So from cover to cover, we have teaching and instruction. And whatever the Bible says, it's true. It's to be trusted. And how your heart thinks about what is said in the Word of God will determine how you feel and how you act. That's why it's so important to be meditating upon God's Word. Once it gets into your mind and you're thinking about it regularly, yeah, it's going to impact how you feel and ultimately how you act. That's the heart. The Bible tells us, as a man thinks in his heart, what's the next phrase? So is he. Yeah. Then the Bible is also sufficient for reproving, as it says here. It convicts or rebukes the soul of sin and its problems in your heart and life. And actually, it provides a very forthright diagnosis. (laughs) Okay? It's very pointed. And when you come to the Word of God, if there's sin, God doesn't hide behind a bush and go, well, you've got a few problems here. No. He comes out and tells you what it is through His Word <laughs> and doesn't beat around the bush at all. He's very forthright in it. In fact, John 3 and verse 20 tells us why man does not like to come to the light. You want to know why people don't like to come to church or to read God's Word? And I'm speaking primarily of lost people. You know why? Because they're confronted with the light. And Jesus said in John 30, John 3, verse 20, they don't come to light because their deeds will be exposed. The Bible is sufficient for reproving. It's also sufficient for its correcting. That's what it says there in verse 16. That word correcting means to set you straight. The Bible points you in the right direction, many times offering you a prescription for what ails you. Yeah, the proper prescription. And by the way, I have found over the years as I have brought God's word to bear upon the hearts and minds of people, there is much instruction, there is much principles in God's word that I can take and provide a prescription for them that will deal with their issues in their life. And I'm trusting that by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, that they will cooperate with Him and they will be transformed from the inside out. The Bible is sufficient for correcting. And finally, it says there that the Word of God is sufficient through its training in righteousness. It builds you up in godly living, providing you a workout plan that delights God and brings you success. I would venture to say that many of you go over to the YMCA or some other place. All right? You've got a workout plan, all right, for your health. You go on a diet. You exercise. And you live by it religiously because you want 
to be healthy. Yeah, you want to be feeling good (laughs) in your body. Well, God's Word provides a workout plan so that you might please God and find success with Him. And so what a gift our Maker and Redeemer has given us in His Word, hasn't He? Isn't this what the Scripture says? Absolutely. In fact, I appreciate what Heath Lambert stated in a book entitled Counseling Hard Cases. Please write that book down. It's a hardback cover. Heath Lambert and Stuart Scott, I've mentioned his name before, both of them author the book. And when you read through that book and see all these cases, I would venture to say that most of us would say, they need a professional. (laughs) And what they do in this book is walk these people through the word of God and by God's grace help them to move from where they are to where they should be. And yet so many times in the evangelical world, we're sending those people out into the world and the psychologist will just ask, well, how are things? There's no blood work given. And just based on the observation and what he hears, he gives a prescription and you're taking medication, which is simply putting a Band-Aid on it. That's not helping the matter. Well, anyway, Heath Lambert stated in Counseling Hard Cases regarding this passage, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, and particularly speaking to the Bible's sanctifying work, he says, all counseling theories, listen to that, All counseling theories take this form. What we just talked about there in verse 16. Even though the contents are radically divergent. What you're going to hear out there is worldly. What you're going to hear from the word of God is wise. It's coming from God. He goes on to say, To say the Bible is profitable for these things is tantamount to saying that scripture is profitable for counseling. A person only misses this connection when he misconstrues problems in living by employing secular categories and demanding that Scripture speak in those same categories. For example, ODD. Well, of course not. The Bible doesn't use those initials. It doesn't even talk about opposition defiance disorder. What does it say? Rebellion. That's what it is. And the only answer for it is God's Word. In fact, if you were to go to the professionals, what is the one thing they say is necessary for you to have if you're to be healthy in your heart and mind? Self-esteem. Oh, you bet. Self-esteem. And yet the Bible calls that what? Pride. And what's the prescription for it? Humility. It's humility. The problem is we do focus on our hearts and our lives way too much, more than we realize. Instead, we want to be directed away from ourselves and to God and His Word and to others. Isn't that what Philippians chapter 2 tells us? It sure does. That's exactly what Jesus did. We're to follow his example. Beloved, we have many examples 
in the Bible of people, even God's people, having the same issues as today. There's nothing new under the sun, by the way. I think I said that at the very beginning. There's anxiety, there's fear, there's depressions, there's mood swings, addictions, and this is just to name a few. The Bible speaks to all of that. We may not even realize it, but it does. But there's hope. Because the Word of God is sufficient for sanctification. David himself proclaimed it. Read the Psalms sometime. You want to see a man who bore out the problems of his heart and life? Just read the Psalms. Oh, and then what does he say in Psalm 19 as we read today? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. (laughs) That's what he said. That was the answer. Paul and Peter proclaimed it. We saw that today. But most importantly, it's because who said it? God. Jesus proclaimed it in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in your truth. Nothing else. Your word is truth. And so I pray, beloved, that you are convinced in your heart that the Bible is sufficient for all counseling issues, which really comes down to salvation and sanctification. That is life in a whole, generally speaking. Before that, we're lost and on our way going to hell. But then we're rescued through salvation. That changes our heart and life. And then there's sanctification, God in you. And bringing you through the many things that you face in your life. I have a booklet that's available for you to take home and read. After the service here, some of our ushers will be handing you out a little booklet. It's about 20 pages long. I've read it. It's by John MacArthur, by the way. It's entitled God's Sufficient Word. I read it while I was on vacation. And the first half of it speaks just generally to the sufficiency of Scripture. But then, in the second half of the booklet, he walks through Psalm 19. Verses 7 to 11. And by the way, when I was going to seminary, I heard him preach on this two times. Just a wonderful message. And so I, I would encourage you to pick up uh, one of those booklets, take it home and read it. And by the way, it's one per family, okay? One per family. Um, because we only got a hundred. Uh, I think that's enough to take care of everybody. But if we run out, I'll get some more and we'll have them available for you next week. And by the way, next week we're going to have part two of this message, but from a different passage of Scripture. And so I want you to be in prayer for this and just our hearts responding in the way God desires. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 4 in verse 12, which deals with this again, the sufficiency of Scripture. So may God bless you in that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and uh, what a blessing it is. Oh, Father. As the pastor of this flock, forgive me, because I know there have been times that I have thought, well, this problem in this person's life, I can't deal with. And send them out to the professionals, when in fact, I could very well have done it. And so forgive me, help me as the shepherd of this flock to be the example of what your word clearly teaches, that it is sufficient. Thank you that you have not left us alone. 
that you've not only saved us, that we have eternal life, God in us, but you'll walk us through any issue we might face. Oh, what an encouragement that is. And so I pray, God, that your people today will leave here with that encouragement for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.